Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Radiotherapy on this lovely Sunday morning. My name is Miss Perry Neam and I am joined in the studio this morning by Training Wheels and Cyber Suze for our first show back in 2024, which is very exciting. The gals are back. The gals are back. We've got a really interesting show for you all today. We are sticking on a theme of medical uh, invention and discovery of new techniques and new procedures, which we are thrilled about. And we are joined by some fabulous guests today. We will be joined later in the show by Associate Professor Fiona Brownfoot um, to talk about her developments in obstetric care, which is really amazing. And we have Professor Greg uh, Chow and Professor Mark Daniel talking about the corneal, bioengineered corneal implants that they've been working on, which is just so interesting. And we are thrilled to have them in. But to start with, we thought. As we all know in the medical world, it's a bit slow in the first few months of the year in terms of research. So today, sticking on our theme, I thought instead of some news, we might jump into a quiz, which, Greg, you're more than welcome to participate in. Please do, because we we need your advice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we might jump into a bit of a quiz this morning, which will be fun. It's not really news, is it? It's not really news. But, I mean, I think it's news. But it felt appropriate. Well, it's historical news because it yeah. creates the news of today in the past. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, yeah. so deep this morning. Oh, it's, it's, it's my first thought of the weekend as well. I haven't had enough coffee for that. <laughs> um, I was shocked when I was reading through this. I tried to focus and come up with these questions on, I was like, oh, it'd be really good if we could get some medical. In- I know that Australia has some fabulous inventions that have come out of us like the Hills Hoist and the Wi-Fi and oh. all these fun things. Hills so Hoist. I was like, wouldn't it be is good if... medical, is it? No. <laughs> hey, depends who you mind. talk to. <laughs> We're adaptable in this field. Uh, <laughs> hey, I know lots of scientists who use the Hills Hoist in very creative ways. But talking we about shouldn't go medical, there in this kind of show. Particularly medical de- developments, right? And I'm was, nervous because we haven't seen these. No, I know. I've kept them hidden. Yeah, yeah. Perineum's being very mysterious. But I was really impressed. I was like, go Aussies because there's lots of things that we as a nation have developed in the medical space, which there's a few names on this list who I think you will know. But let's, let's hope so. Yeah. I'm ready to be embarrassed. But for our, list, for our listeners out there, let's see if you know some of these individuals and what they might have created. So I'm going to give you a name and then as a clue, I'll give you a year in which they did this particular mm. thing and you have to guess what they invented. Okay. Or pr- We're on. And it could be either a device or a procedure. Mm. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll start with one that's relatively recent mm-hmm. professor fiona wood oh i know this one Yay. <laughs> yeah thank goodness <laughs> training wheels spray on skin yes yeah so she developed in the 19 in 1999 she developed a new technique for skin grafting which allowed them to take cells and spray them onto an area and allow the skin to seed in in wounds and she actually helped some of the bali bombing victims and her techniques have been used all over the world and she was australian of the year around Correct. that time yes yeah, which is amazing yep. i think that's yeah. really cool that is and she's got like 17 children or something. <laughs> She's Mad. just one of those wonder women that yeah. just like does everything. Yeah. Yeah. Love that for her. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Good. All right. Sweating. Our next one is a duo. We mm-hmm. have a physicist, Edgar Booth, and Dr. Mark Ludwill. Okay. No idea. Any names? Any names? It was done in the 1920s. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you're uh, also no. having a guess at what this could be. 1920s. I didn't know that this came out of Australia. A I device was... or procedure? Device. Okay. Device. 1920s. What were the names again? Dr. Mark Ludwill and physicist Edgar Booth. Physicist. I'm thinking something radiology related. Mm, sort no. of. Mm, no. There's wires involved. Okay, no idea. They created the first artificial pacemaker. 
You're kidding. An no. artificial pacemaker. Yeah, they developed the first prototype for pacemakers of what we know yeah, today wow. was done in Australia. That's incredible. I had Molly. no idea mm-hmm. that that was part of our history. I thought that was amazing. That is unreal. And wow. just on a side note of that, they actually then did the first transplant of that device later that decade into a human patient. Also in Australia. Also in Australia. So it started with with mice. They did the first trials of the device in mice. Oh, so cute. I know, super tidy. (laughs) (laughs) But they did the first transplant of it it into a patient later that decade, which I think is amazing. Mm. Cheapers. Okay. Now, the next one will definitely be a name that people know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Howard Florey. Oh, of course. Florey Institute. Correct. But Mm -hmm. what did he discover? Mm. Um, yes. It's embarrassing that we don't I know. know. It is bad, isn't it? That's shameful. I feel like this is infectious diseases related, but maybe yes. I'm making that close. Up. Okay, yeah. it's pretty big. Antibiotic of some sort. Think down that path. Okay. Like what's the big antibiotic? Penicillin. With? Correct. Yeah. He did not. He did. No. In, what about in 1939? He was the first person to purify penicillin from mold spores. That's staggering. And showed that it was effective on bacteria in mice. That's mad. Amazing. What is it about Australians? We've got some really smart people here. Did you know that? No. (laughs) Obviously not. Which, I mean, penicillin is the unbelievable game changer. Like, I was reading in preparation for this quiz that I did not prepare for. (laughs) (laughs) It's that I learned yesterday that the lifespan now is 40 years longer than 200 years ago. And a big part of that, of course, is penicillin. Antibiotics, so. But I thought, what's his name? Is it Alexander Fleming? Mm. So did he maybe discovered? He was the first person to like purify it down to make it medicinally available. Uh-huh. But Flory was the one that actually discovered. He did that the pre-work. The, he was yeah. the one that did the science of distilling from the mold spores mm-hmm. and showing that it had an effect on bacteria in mice. So he didn't uh-huh. do it as a. So it was a team effort. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but that's good. That's yeah. amazing. I like that. I think yeah. that's really. I mean, yeah. no, without totally. the scientist, you don't get the doctors who get no. to use the medicine, that's right? right? Like, correct. This is, you know, it's it's important to have those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. This one's a bit more recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Graham Clark in the 1970s. Greg's nodding. Ooh. Yes. All right, Greg. Monica ear. <gasps> Yes, okay, I did know that was an Australian invention, but yeah. I didn't know the name. And okay. furthermore, there is actually a street called Bionic Ear. Lane. Yes, Bionic Lane. Lane. Ear yes Lane. I live near there. <gasps> it's giving yes. away personal information. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they were a team based out of Melbourne University and they created the first um, prototypes and developed the Bionic Ear. And they also then worked with a team of surgeons and doctors and in 1978 put the first prototype of that Bionic Ear into a human participant. Wow. I wonder if there's anybody who's got a pacemaker and a bionic ear who's taken well, by now there would be exactly. there would be definitely and yeah. soon a corneal implant exactly yeah. as well. Well, we hope not for their sake, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> an unfortunate fun, person. Fun story: I actually went to a school with a girl who had two bionic ears, and um, she was born congenitally congenitively deaf. And she was great fun to have at sleeping parties because at sleepovers, whenever she was sick of the noise oh, and she wanted to go, she just off. took her ears oh, off and went to wow. sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that makes okay, sense. we've got one last one, and this is the most recent. Okay. And I think I, I personally lived this discovery, so I think this is really mm. interesting. P- Professor Ian Fraser and Dr. Jin Zhao in 2006 developed this in Australia. Greg, you're nog- nog- the, nodding uh, again. For cervical cancer? Correct. Oh. Yes. Oh. So, Gardasil. Gardasil. Which is, Wait, all, is the pap smear also an Australian invention? I feel like it is. I'm not sure. I didn't I find like, that one on my list. I believe it is. I might be oh, completely making Dr. that up. Googles. But I yeah. think I think that cervical cancer is like all Australian innovation. It's very, it's very much our field. So I think the thing is, so Gardasil is a vaccine that works on the human papillomavirus, mm. which is a particular virus that um, can be found in lots of areas of the body, but particularly in the cervix, it is known to cause three quarters of the different types of cancer. So the virus comes in, it mutates the cells and it pre precedes the sort of cancer in that area. And what Gardasil does is come in and block um, that virus reproduction. And I can actually remember being at mm. high school. It was a big deal. And getting the vaccine for the first time. Yes, me um, too. And it, it's amazing. And 
now friend of the show, Liz Dawes, who we had on at the mm. end of last year, they've actually just announced that they're working on a vaccine for brain cancer. That's right, using similar technology. Which is amazing. Yeah, it's that is wild unreal. to me that you can vaccinate against cancer. Yeah, it is very cool, isn't it? I think that's just amazing that and we've got these kinds of things. Yeah, that's so true. And, of course, the, the whole thing about the uh, the... the, the papilloma is the, the prevention of the virus that causes the cancer which is amazing and for, the other important thing to remember that that's important for men as well like with uh, it's evolving in tonsil cancer yeah so there you go. prevention on both sides now the, the, the George Nicholas Papillon Canal Papanicolou thank you Lovely. he was uh, born in 1883 in Greece and he was the he's best known for creating the test the pap test okay, which is known as the pap smear so it's not Australian, I made I'm that sorry. up. You oh, made that up. Okay. But nonetheless, all right. Yeah. Never mind. Mm. I know we've got some pretty amazing um, scientists that work here on reproductive health, yeah. and we. I think one of the things that people forget is that there's a lot of controversy about reproductive and sexual health in other parts of the developed medical world in terms of research, and so we're a little bit more open-minded as to the kind of. Um, scientific discoveries so you know it's it's amazing that we get to contribute that component to the medical understanding of the world without as much judgment like we've seen coming out of the states in and you know alabama this week in terms of ivf and embryo use and all of those kinds of things i'd like to also just take the opportunity to remind people with cervixes that you should be having your cervical screening every five years until you turn 70 correct and that there is now you can talk to your gp about the new at home test Testing. Which is really important. That's right. You don't have to do the whole speculum jazz if you don't want to. You can yeah. just I, – I did this myself. This is an overshare probably. But my GP said, do you know how to do it? And I said, stick it up. Whiz it round. She said, yep. That's what you do. Wow. So if you want to do that, speak to your GP and get the test to take home. I mean, exactly I wouldn't right. do it for fun, but do get <laughs> training. <laughs> hey, no judgment. No judgment. <laughs> something to do on a Saturday night, but it is important to do. <laughs> that quiz perineum i love your quizzes yeah. i love a good quiz oh love trivia yeah me too all right we are probably going to pop to some station announcements now and then we're going to come back uh with our first guests and talk about corneas and all things i i i <laughs> this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. We are back on Radiotherapy. It is 10.14 on this lovely Sunday morning in Melbourne, which is shaping up to be a cracker day. I cannot keep up. Mm. Yeah. It's, anyway. it's so good. Yesterday was perfect. Yeah. That's Everyone. Just by the bye. Mm. Uh, reminder from all the doctors in the studio, slip, slop, slap. Make sure you <gasps> get your sunscreen on. Okay. It's going to be a high UV day. All the preventative health mm. information yeah. this morning. <laughs> we are going to switch gears. We're going to start talking about um, a really interesting area of both science and medical research. We are very blessed to have Professor Greg Chow in the studio with us and on the phone, Professor Mark Daniels. And they are going to answer our very ignorant but curious questions about their latest uh, innovation. So Professor Greg Chow is a professor, professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. His research interests are in synthetic polymer chemistry and its applications, and he is the chief investigator of the Bienco, which is a consortium comprising lead corneal bioengineers and medical experts. He is working to develop the technology to produce multiple synthetic corneas to help alleviate the global shortage of donor corneas. That's Incredible, isn't it? Just? I mean, just as a, as a pause on that, like when you hear that, you, like when you read that, that is incredible. So to alleviate the global shortage of donors, so there's a lack of donors, so you're creating mm-hmm. something. To, yeah, and then we're, we've got Professor Daniels on the phone, um, has been an active clinician and researcher in the field of corneal tissue engineering and cell therapy, as well as the clinical eye research. He is currently leading the Centre for Eye Research and Australia's Corneal Research, and is working to develop a tissue. Engineered cornea. So, welcome, oh. gentlemen, to radiotherapy. Thank you. Could I please start with a really basic question, just in case listeners like myself are not up to speed with their eye anatomy? Mm. Can you remind me what's a cornea? 
Yeah, well, maybe I'll take that one. Go for um, it. The cornea is the um, is the clear window on the front of the eye. Um, one of the engineers, when they were writing one of our uh, grant applications, called it the dust cover, which I thought was a bit mean. It, it does a little <laughs> bit more than that. If it um, it's um, it, it has to be completely clear for you to see well. The the light um, refracts through that cornea, then into the eye, and then onto the retina. So corneal diseases make the um, cornea either a funny shape or opaque or swollen. And um, what we do if the cornea can't be repaired in any other way is we do a corneal transplant. Mm. Um, there we take a, a cornea from, which has been donated from uh, someone who's died. Um, it's been stored in an eye bank, which we have at the, at the hospital, and then uh, kept in organ culture for a few weeks. And then we, we ask them for it, and then they send it out to our operating theatre, and then we, we sew it into position. So, um, yeah, go on. Thank you. So, so Mark, this is Cyber Sue, and good morning to you from afar. Um, I have a couple of questions as well. Is first, of all, how, I've got two questions. The first one is how common are corneal problems? Like how many, how common is that in society? And the second question is you talked about cornea donation, and I'm curious to know um, who can donate their corneas, or are there restrictions on who can after they die? So, um, well, I, I'm kept incredibly busy with corneal problems from, from dawn till dusk, um, you know, Monday to Friday, and we've got 15 corneal surgeons. So from my perspective, it's pretty uh, pretty common. Mm. It's also the most common form of um, transplantation done in Australia. There are more corneas transplanted than, than kidneys or hearts or anything else. Mm. Um, it's also probably the third leading cause of uh, blindness um, in the world. I mean, after, you know, retinal problems and cataracts, it's um, it's you know really a major problem, especially in the developing world where they don't have um, the ability to have cornea, corneal transplant. Um, and the corneas that we get to answer your second question, um, basically anyone can donate. You know there are a few restrictions. Obviously, if you die of some horrible infectious um, disease or um, or um, you know, we, we, the cornea has been damaged in the past, but most of the time, you know, from doesn't matter how old um, the patient is, the, the um, they can still donate, and we can still use their cornea. And then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but it's still a case for organ donation in this country that you have to opt in to allow corneal transplant if you are on the organ donor registry. Yeah, that's right. So um, we've got uh, a team uh, that work at the iBank that um, they, they, they're notified about uh, a potential donor and they go and talk to the family to gain consent to the cornea to be used for for um, either a transplant or sometimes you know, for research purposes. So with your um, new development of this implant, are you using human tissue or is it completely synthetic? Maybe you can both answer that together. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I'll uh, I'll start off with that one. So the, the, in Australia, we've got you know because the eye banks are so efficient, we do have enough corneas for each um, for each patient that we need. There's a sort of a small wait of a few months, but uh, in the rest of the world, there is a huge shortage. You know, to get the organisation and the regulations to make sure that it's safe and um, and uh, and clean and so on is very. Um, you know, very, it requires a lot of uh, money and rigour and so on. So um, we thought of the idea of um, just taking a few human cells and then expanding them in the lab, um, which we've worked out how to do. And then once they've been expanded, we have to work out some way of transplanting them inside the, in, inside the eye. And um, that's where we got, uh, I got involved with Greg. We were sort of, um, this idea of tissue engineering is that you, you, you expand the cells and then you build scaffolds to, um, to transplant the cells in, into the eye. So maybe I'll pass over to Greg and he can tell you about the scaffold. Mm. Yeah, so this is, came from quite a number of years ago where we made this uh, special polymer material, which is uh, very benign, also can grow the cells. So uh, when Mark sees it, he, he said, oh, that would be very good for cornea uh, cell growth. So we started actually from a sheep cell. So we mm. took the material, used the sheep cell in the Mark's lab, and then we grow them into uh, many, many cells. Then we use them as a transplant uh, in sheep model. 
in vivo, and that was very successful. That was really, really encouraging. So since then, we start to using human cell and then go in the lab and then start to grow them. Mm. And that's how we come in from that time. And it's almost like a 14 years in making these. It's absolutely unbelievable. I'm trying to visualize you having a, sh- and correct me if I'm wrong on this, you've got a sheep that you've transplanted it into a sheep. How do you then know that the sheep can see through it? Oh, what that, a good question. That was a very, very well, interesting. And, uh, how many fingers and, and are asked the the Can you see the, the letter R on the bottom chart? I, I actually <laughs> asked the, the same grass? question at that time when oh, okay. Mark was doing the transplantation. Some They told me a torch. Torch is the best way ah. to, to tell. So light, light recognition. Correct. Yeah, right. Now, it's an interesting point, but do you get similar to other organ donations I assume that we're using a stem cell of some kind in terms of seeding these the, the tissue onto the, the mesh that you were talking about Greg Mark could answer better I think it's just normal cell which is a proliferate yeah, okay. from the lab and, and do you get almost like a tissue rejection do you, are you looking at sort of kind of like any other transplant where you'd be looking at those kinds of things or is it a different kind of cell where you're not getting human rejection as a factor yeah, that's a that's a uh, an interesting point and one that we're still working on. But what we do these days when we're doing a corneal transplant, about half the transplants we just transplant a single layer of cells. Mm. So they're the lining cells on the inside of the eye, um, and the function of those cells is to to pump the um, fluid out of the cornea to keep it transparent. Mm. And if they they don't work, the cornea swells and it becomes like looking through frosted glass. Okay. So these those endothelial they're called endothelial cells, and those cells normally don't divide in um, in life, you know, inside your body. But we've worked out a way of getting them to divide um, in the lab. Um, and it's interesting that there doesn't seem to be rejection against those cells. You know, there's rejection against, um, they're called antigen-presenting cells, that sort of particular cells that float in the body of the cornea, but not on that, um, that endothelial layer. So if we can just transplant endothelial cells, the rate of rejection goes from maybe 30% down to, you know, 1% or 2% or, or even less. So um, that would be a huge boon for, for people in Australia and America, even with the corneas that we're using currently, if we can um, you know, reduce that rejection rate. Absolutely. So that was one of the drivers of the research, yeah. I'm wondering if there's much difference in terms of the quality of the cornea that's then transplanted as opposed to one that's come from a, a human um, donor versus these synthetic corneas. Are they better or worse or exactly the same? Well, that that remains to be seen. Uh, and, you know, we haven't done uh, done it in uh, in humans yet. That's what this big grant is for. Um, but look, theoretically, it should be better. Um, grants, uh, yeah. Um, sorry. The uh, scaffold that um, that uh, Greg has invented is very thin, it's transparent, it's robust enough for surgery, but it also just dissolves away inside the eye. So it'll be absolutely nothing left. It'll just be the layer of cells. So you should get perfect um, you know, vision you know, you know, from those cells if it um, all sticks and works nicely with none of the interface problems that we get currently with um, with the membranes that we're putting in you know, from, from the donor tissue. So it might be better. Also, if, if it doesn't work, we can just get another one off the shelf and put another one in rather than mm. you know, we, we're obviously, donor tissue is so precious, we don't want to don't want to waste it and we don't we want to have the most effective operation uh, and patients want the most effective operation too, they want to be fixed the first time so, you know, it, um, potentially it could be better. And, and um, Greg, can I ask, in terms of manufacturing these particular um, sort of tissue grafts, what's your sort of turnover how much tissue are you getting in a cycle of manufacturing and things like that well we haven't got that far yet at the moment we only make those material in our lab and it's uh not very uh, expensive to make um, but uh, when you actually go to a medical transplant or substrates then you have to go, go to this procedure called good manufacturing uh, procedures mm-hmm. and then you have to find a qualified uh, uh, manufacturer facility and make those all meets all the requirements for medical use and that's a part of this uh, grant we're going to find the places and make those materials mm-hmm. 
Mark, you mentioned that, um, you know, a, a kind of huge driver for this research was the expense and logistical challenges associated with um, harvesting and maintaining these donor corneas. And, and you think that these synthetic corneas will be uh, hopefully more scalable in lower income countries. What about the next step as in the actual implantation stage? Is that kind of a relatively straightforward procedure? Not to diminish, you know, your hard work and expertise, <laughs> but is that is that something that lower income countries are going to, that's not a barrier. Yeah, so I, I, I think that's an important point because you, you do need to make the surgery um, achievable for, I know, you know, being a corneal surgeon does require, you know, a moderate amount of training. You have to be a doctor and then a um, specialise. And, and, but if you can do cataract surgery, then I think you can do this type of corneal surgery. You know, we can train people to, to do this. So, and there are problems with, um, with training of, um, of specialists around the world and there are various ways where people are working to, to, to make that better. Um, so you do need to have a corneal surgeon who's used to using a microscope and operating you know, in very delicate parts of the, the body very skillfully. Um, so we're not going to fix that completely, but we're going to try and make the surgery as easy as possible so that um, it's, you don't need to have a PhD in surgery just to be able to do this operation. It's going to be one that, um, that uh, you know, a competent um, microsurgeon can do. And is, is there any sort of um, hope to work with there's I know there's lots of um, charities worldwide that look in, at the health of eyes in sort of developing countries such as you know the Fred Hollows Foundation or things like that around the world is there a hope that you might be able to partner with those kinds of, of people to get training and this procedure out to, to more developed like developing countries yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is sort of, um, you know, the next um, stage. Once we've actually got it to work and we've done a human trial, then we'll be partnering with whoever's interested. But um, we've spoken to, you know, some of those groups already. And, um, you know, they've been working on cataract and they've been working on diabetes. But, um, you know, to work on corneal problems would be maybe the next frontier for them. But, uh, no, that's, a, a, you know, an excellent um, thought. Yeah. And, Greg, maybe you can speak to this. In terms of the next stages for you in terms of getting this from your lab out to the sort of wider populace what does that time frame look like how long are we going to be waiting for this magical piece of equipment we are hoping uh, with this grant we can do phase one human trial within these five years time Mm -hmm. and if everything goes very well we know the medical research and uh, the regulatory requirement can take a long time as well but our hope is uh, this may be seen in the hospital in seven years but if not then that's a target we will work with to, uh, towards that yeah, yeah fabulous well so impressive uh, yeah Sue. Uh, yeah i also i i have another question mm, is that okay go for it and it's i guess it's to you especially greg but to both of you is um i guess as an engineer you find yourself in this kind of uh, inventing incredible life-changing thing how does it feel for you personally to very, be working in very this? exciting yeah because you see your research can be used in society and benefit the, for humankind that's very very rewarding when you started your career did you think you'd be here no i was actually working on plastics yeah now then i can walk out on biomedical materials yeah what an incredible change of career i think it's fabulous that there are humans like you out there mark and greg that look at something and go you know we can think outside the box and find a different use for it which is just it's what we need we need more innovative people in the in the world to to solve all of our solve all of our problems that mm, we have feel very proud this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia triple r is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding if you would like to financially support triple r by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how we are heading into a little chat with our next guest, who we are very excited to have in the studio with us. We've got Associate Professor Fiona Brownfoot. She's a specialist obstetrician and head of the Obstetrics, Diagnostics and Therapeutics Group and multidisciplinary team of scientists and engineers focusing on developing novel diagnostics and treatments in pregnancy and obstetric care. Welcome to the studio. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I feel very, very honoured. Pleasure to have you. We are, we're, we're just 
saying how sort of special we feel to have such amazing uh, bioengineering and medical minds and proud we are that they're all Australian doing all of this amazing creative work, which is so wonderful to have you in the studio with us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your current project, which is you're developing CTG monitoring, but remote, which is very exciting. That's that's exactly right, Perineum, which is the perfect name for this field. (laughs) (laughs) We have to start off with a question which comes back. Tell us about CTG monitoring and what that actually means, especially for us non-parents of the world. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's a good place to start. So currently, in order to see how the baby's coping with pregnancy and labour, we check the baby's heartbeat using a CTG machine. Now, a CTG machine uh, is quite a large machine that's uh, in hospitals and it uses ultrasound-based technology whereby you've got to put the probe directly over the baby's heartbeat. So it means that a clinician must be there in order to place that sensor right directly over the baby's heart. And then if the mum moves or the baby moves, then there can often be signal dropout. So as you can imagine, it can be quite frustrating for women uh, antenatally that need to come into hospitals, especially those, you know, uh, that have other other kids at home and then trying to find care for those other children can be quite a challenge as well as during labor it can be quite tricky as you know we like our women to be active in labor um, and you know the midwife having to keep repositioning that machine in order to pick up an, an adequate trace can be quite a challenge and it can be a bit of a source of anxiety, can't it, when you when the heartbeat keeps yeah. dropping out, so mm. to speak. You sort of yeah. think, oh, is it? Oh no, it's okay. The baby's just moved. Yeah. <laughs> and mm. for, for those that have seen on uh, good old medical shows, if you're a bit of a Grey's Anatomy fan out there, if you've ever seen those very dramatic moments of a, a woman giving birth and they're talking about D cells, D cells are often what they're looking at in terms of that CTG monitoring as part of looking at the baby's health through the labour process rather than just mum's. So it's really interesting that the device you're looking at is actually looking at the baby monitoring rather than the maternal monitoring, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's and that's exactly right. So with that machine um, that picks up the baby's heartbeat, you're right, it's it's actually the, um, the trace that we look for and we look for patterns in that trace to diagnose if indeed the baby's coping really well or if the baby is, is not coping and needs to be born urgently to try and prevent a stillbirth or cerebral palsy within that baby. And, and when you're using these kinds of monitoring, is it just for the labour procedure or is there a certain population of people that are going to need monitoring like this much earlier in yeah. their pregnancy? Yeah, that's exactly right. So about 50% of patients will require uh, monitoring during their pregnancy on an average of about two times. That's which, quite a bit. Yeah, exactly right. Some women won't need it at all, but then you'll have other women um, that are high-risk pregnancies that require very frequent monitoring sessions. Yeah. Uh, so you're right, it is... It is required by a large um, number of our our pregnant population during pregnancy itself, not just during labour. And then during labour, the the vast majority of women will have um, fetal monitoring. That's because it's the only way that we can check up on the baby to see exactly how the baby's coping um, during the pregnancy or the labour at that point in time. And so tell us a little bit about the device you've been developing in terms of how it changes what our current practice is. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it was really frustrations with that CTG monitoring, both um, you know during pregnancy and the women having to stay in our units for many hours because there, you know it's continual dropout, as well as with twins, it can be really tricky. Mm. As you can't be sure if you're monitoring which baby you're monitoring, um, and in labour, you know our women like to be active and we're having to pin them down to the bed in order to get that heartbeat. So it was both my frustration in the labour ward and and clinics, but it was when I actually went to a conference. It was an engineering conference in Hawaii, the engineers know where to put their conferences, <laughs> um, that uh, I think it was Apple or Google were there and they were talking about they just developed the iWatch mm-hmm. and they were able to monitor people's heart rates continuously. Mm. And it seemed that the general population were really excited about this, but then Google was now trying to work out a way of how we could integrate this in medical care. And it really 
got me thinking that perhaps, you know what, if we could do that for the fetus, I reckon we're probably ready now for an at-home fetal monitoring device. Is it called an eye device? Or? Yeah, I know. Do you know what? That would be that would be a great name for it. We've actually, so we've called the company Carly Healthcare. And the reason is we've got three founders mm-hmm. and one of our founders is Indian. And uh, the goddess Carly is the goddess of fertility and she's very protective of wow. her children. And yep. so that's why we came up with the name Carly Healthcare. We've actually just called it the Carly device, but I think mm-hmm. it is, it, it mm. does need a, perhaps another name um, as we're now looking at, you know, commercialising that device. Yeah. So where are you up to in that process? Because it is quite a long process of getting a device from, you know, sketch on a piece of paper and a lovely idea to, yeah. to really being mm. ready to use in the medical world. 100%. And it was very clear that ultrasound was not going to be the way forward. Yeah, right. And that was because it is hospital centric because mm-hmm. it requires these big machines and clinician intensive. You need to have a midwife there to continue your reposition. So look, the ideal device would be a device that a woman could just put on herself. It would pick up that baby's heartbeat um, and a clinician could be watching that trace, um, perhaps in a telehealth in a telehealth setting to tell the woman, yep, everything's okay, which look with antenatal monitoring, so that's in pregnancy monitoring, the vast majority of the time it is, or indeed, no, you need to quickly come in, come into hospital. So this is when we started investigating the fetal ECG. So that is picking up the electrical activity of the baby's heart, but indeed the trace, we needed to look the same as what we're getting on ultrasound so that us clinicians are able to interpret um, that those patterns and how that baby is coping. Mm. And this really took us down quite a, a long path of developing that technology as it's really hard to pick up a baby's, um, the electrical activity of a baby's heartbeat because um, the amplitude is quite, is quite small mm. and there's a lot of interference. So the maternal heartbeat has a much stronger electrical activity. Then there's gut electrical activity. Uh, there's uh, interference, external electrical activity from the mobile phones. So um, in order to develop this technology, we recruited 100 women and worked out exactly where the baby's heart was in order to work out where the optimal position of those sensors would need to be so that we could um, optimally pick up that, um, that, that fetal heart rate. Then the next challenge was once we had designed those sensors and we found that indeed we could drop it right down from 24 sensors that we used to cover the whole abdomen to work out the optimal position, we could get it down to six sensors, which could be placed in one patch um, on the mum's abdomen and they needed to be both um, four sensors and above the umbilicus and um, two below the umbilicus. That's a fancy word for belly button. A belly button, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. So once we'd worked out the location, the next challenge was what engineering techniques can we use in order to extract that fetal heart rate? And look, when we applied the traditional um, engineering um, techniques, it just was not adequate enough to get us um, to a a level whereby we'd be... uh, the regulatory authorities would be comfortable with the technology. So that is, it must be greater than 80% accuracy. Mm-hmm. So what we then applied was um, novel AI, and it was really with the artificial intelligence showing the computer a CTG trace and saying, can you pick out the baby's heartbeat to mimic this trace that we're able to, in fact, obtain 90% accuracy, which is well above that FDA standard of 80%. Yeah. Did you have any challenges in terms of uh, applying an AI protocol in terms of getting approval from FDA and things like that? Because it's a relatively new form of um, technology. Did that slow down that procedure in terms of getting approval? Yeah. So, look, we're now currently embarking on our FDA and TGA um, approval pathway. So Mm. we've got a predicate, there is a predicate device, Mm. which means we can go down the 510K, which is far, far quicker. Mm. And essentially what we'll need to do is show that indeed our device has 80%, uh, greater than 80% accuracy when it's reading the fetal heart rate. And if we are able to achieve that, then we should be able to achieve um, FDA regulatory approval. So we've now put forward um, our clinical trial We've now submitted that to the FDA just on Friday. Oh, wow. And it's so exciting. Mm. And a part of this process, so it's called an FDAQ 
sub. Um, it's a submission whereby we'll sit with the FDA um, within the next 60 days or so. They will tell us whether or not they are happy with both the clinical trial design and the outcomes that we must achieve in order to obtain FDA approval. Um, and then we'll go and embark on that, what we call a pivotal clinical trial. So that is the clinical trial in order to get regulatory approval. And how many women do you expect to need in that trial to start with? Sure, yeah. So look, we're looking at around 200 women um, antenatally, so that's during pregnancy, and then another 200 women during labour. But for the research aspects of it, so you know, we are confident because we have um, used the research grade device in order to develop both the hardware as well as those algorithms, the software in order to obtain that baby's heartbeat. We were getting 90% accuracy. Um, And from that trial, it really showed us women are very accepting and really excited about this technology. Mm, I can well imagine How does it change their care? Like, what does it look like in terms for you as a clinician? What does it allow them to do in terms that they can't do now? What does that look yeah, like for them? Yeah, absolutely. So now, so perhaps I'll, I'll go into who's currently having fetal monitoring. So it tends to be women that have reduced fetal movements or those high-risk pregnancies. So um, women with IVF, gestational diabetes, high blood pressure, um, those at risk of preterm birth um, tend to require fetal monitoring. Um, and currently how that looks is if a woman uh, has, has reduced fetal movements, then she will need to go into the hospital in order to obtain that CTG heart rate monitoring. But what this device allows us to do is give that woman control of of the monitoring. So in fact, the vision is that she will just place this monitor on. She will call up either uh, a midwife who will then activate the device. So it will be fully clinician activated, um, who will activate the device, tell the woman, no, that's all looking fine. Um, uh, You know, go about your day. If you have more concerns, make sure you attend your hospital, you know, call us back or make sure you attend your hospital depending on on what that advice needs to be. So it will really shift monitoring rather than being in these big fetal monitoring units that take up hours of time, women are able to obtain that access. And I I really hope it equalises that healthcare within those rural settings whereby it might be three hours until these women are able to attend hospital or so. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're back on Radiotherapy and we are joined in the studio with our fabulous guest, Fiona, who is talking to us about her very novel um, CTG, remote CTG monitoring, um, which is going to change the way obstetrics is performed, not in only in this country, but I think probably eventually around the world. Suze, you had some I questions? I do. So I want yeah. to know, so the work you're doing is incredible and I was just saying off air how absolutely gorgeous Dr. Brownford is and how lovely she is and what a lovely person she is as well as being incredibly intelligent and innovative. You're far too nice. (laughs) No, it's It's a good way to start a Sunday morning (laughs) coming. It's all quite factual and and what I'm fascinated about is how do you get the funding to run such a project as this? That's the number one question. And number two question is I'm very interested that you went to an engineering conference. Yes, yeah. It's incredible where things take you, right? Mm. And it's where your interests lie. And for me, um, it's, you know, it was around how could we potentially reduce stillbirth? And, um, you know, current monitoring, I know from my patients, you know, they'll have reduced movements for 24 hours before they come into hospital. It's either tricky for their husband, you know, if they want support and, you know, the husbands are at work or their friend, you know, to, to come with them to bring them in, that takes a few hours. And then if they've got kids at home, finding care for those children. So it really does then limit their ability to obtain and access the care required required to try and reduce you know this devastating outcome so yeah it was it was really that that drove me to think right we need better technologies and let's 
check out what is available in the engineering world in order Mm. to see whether or not that might help us. Mm. And it was really when a colleague then introduced me um, to engineering engineering colleagues that are also interested in fetal monitoring that then this really generated this this idea, you know, this concept of at-home fetal monitoring and whether or not we could pursue a novel technology, a new technology in order to allow this to happen. And then how did you get it funded? The funding, exactly right. So look, um, initially the research, so I guess what I've learned along the way is what's research grade funding and for us that was we didn't know if we were going to be able to do this so that was definitely a research grade project um, Emerson Keenan was a PhD student and he uh, then took this on as his PhD um, and it was funding through the Baisha Foundation which is a philanthropic group they gave us 600,000 um, in order to make this a reality and once Emerson came to me and said fee We've done it. That's it. It's working. And we you should see the smile on Fiona's yeah. face. Yeah. <laughs> the joy that comes off you with this yes. is just, it's so infectious. Yeah. It's really lovely. Oh, thanks, guys. Well, we celebrated for about 24 hours and then we realised... <laughs> Oh my goodness, the commercial mountain ahead of us in order mm. to get this to the clinic, which is, you know, really our dream of where this might have a big impact for our patients. My question is, how many cocktails did it take someone before <laughs> you went, hey, should we put it on Shark Tank? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That's a bit like what it was. So we went to um, the University of Melbourne has a pre-seed fund and it's called the Genesis Fund and that then has commercial-based outcomes. So they were our first investors. So we had investment from the Genesis Fund, University of Melbourne, and then um, Victoria's really keen on female founders and we uh, applied for the Alice Anderson Fund, which is a fund through Launch Vic if you've got a female founder. Um, And we're very fortunate that they also supply funding along with some private investments. So we were able to raise a million dollars. And then what that allowed us to do is develop the commercial grade products. So we've just finished the development of both the hardware as well as the software um, for this product. And right now we're looking at further investment in order to get through regulatory approval, get through that FDA um, and TGA clinical trial. Obviously you've got a way to go until this is, you know, something that every pregnant person pops on as a matter of routine in their pregnancy when they need monitoring. Yes. But I'm wondering, this approach sounds quite different in terms of... You said that the CTG is ultrasound-based, whereas this is ECG, electrical connectivity-based. Yes, correct. So it's actually quite a different way of monitoring the fetus's heart. Do you envisage any other applications in terms of diagnostics or other interesting information that we might glean from having an ECG of a fetus that we don't usually have access to you're so good training women. That's exactly where it's next headed so that's really um the more research-based outcomes for this study versus the commercial um trajectory which is that fda um pivotal clinical trial so you're absolutely right so the next step is what else can we glean from the electrical activity this device is able to pick up so one of them is fetal arrhythmia and whether or not we can indeed diagnose fetal arrhythmia mm-hmm. and that's something that we are in the process of developing algorithms in order to extract the problem is it's a really rare outcome so we're not we just don't have that much training data to give to um you know engineers to then develop those algorithms Mm. but a far well a really exciting perhaps far wide spreading um problem is preterm birth and currently we um, use a swab to check proteins within the um the fluid in the vagina to see whether or not a mother might be at risk of preterm birth if she comes in with um, symptoms of preterm birth it's really good at telling us that the woman's not going to labour, but it's not very good at telling us if the woman might labour. And what we think the device might be able to do is it might be able to pick up a uterine electrical signature oh. that gives us more information to say, indeed, that woman may progress um, and and have preterm birth. So, again, we're really hoping it equalises healthcare. You know, it might be able to mean that those women that are in the country can indeed stay in the country um, rather than being brought to Melbourne with a 50% chance. Of delivering a baby preterm, the other 50% are just stuck here um, in hospital beds. I can really see the significance on a global scale. Mm. I mean, this is profound a profound change to the way of, of, of the care. care of women in pregnancy. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Like, I'm, yeah, super, super excited um, about the potential and where it might go. Um, and it is... 
it's been a really cool learning curve. You know, all of my circles were either medical or research, and then now I've got this circle of, you know, commercial professionals, and it is such an exciting intersection to be in to kind of double with, uh, you know, with, with the engineering aspects and you know deeply involve yourself within obviously the medical, um, clinical trial and the you know commercialization strategy. And I think particularly now we're seeing a trend in obstetric care that women are more focused on staying at home and and staying out of the hospital setting but there is this real miscommunication in terms of safety of that environment it, yeah. f- having the capacity to support a woman in her choices if she wants to choose to have a doula present in her home birth if she wants to labor at home and to be able to monitor and, and ensure safety for her but also safety of the fetus yeah. where if something's going on we can intercede before an ambulance phone call is made or things like that is an amazing um, tool for women to be able to make informed choices in their obstetric care which is really really amazing yeah this is this is exactly the vision you know it might allow us to put uh you know the traces on women when they're in early labor they might actually be able to stay at home for longer Mm. knowing that indeed everything's okay and you know the baby's heartbeat's okay if you want to stay at home that little bit longer so you're exactly right it then gives that woman that informed choice um you know to come in or indeed everything's going okay if you'd like to stay at home you're welcome so we're almost out of time but while we've got where can people go if they're interested in learning more information about the clinical trial or getting in touch with you in terms of potentially being one of your patients who might be benefiting from this device yeah absolutely so we've got our website it's carlyhealthcare.com.au or you can indeed email myself at uh it's fiona at carly healthcare how do you spell carly um k-a-l-i okay beautiful yeah perfect sorry i did not um or fiona.brownfoot at unimelb.edu.au. And I guess what's your time frame? What's gold, I, you know, gold star moment of how quickly would you love to see this be part of your daily practice? Absolutely. I reckon we can do it within two years. <gasps> what? Oh, wow. Stop it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Can I? All right. I'm going to put it out there. In two years' time. We're going to have you on before then. But, like, in two years' time, yes. I want to have you back in this mm. studio where we can touch and play with one of these devices <laughs> and we'll we'll give it a go Absolutely. live on air. Are Let's you going to volunteer it. the test pregnancy for it on air? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll find someone. I'll find something. That's I'll it. make it work. It That's a either. massive commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to talk to the hubby about that one. <laughs> we heard it first. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's so good. Well, it's just I think we've all felt really blessed to have just the most amazing interesting people come on the show today and to talk about all of these big brain ideas that were coming out of our Australian and Melbourne environment and just what a change it will make in the world in terms of patient care and and all of those things. It really, it, I don't know, I don't know about you ladies, but it warms my soul. It gets, oh, yeah, my, feel, gets my juices yeah, flowing. Absolutely. Yeah, Invigorating. <laughs> I think it's been a really fabulous first show back for Team Girl on Radiotherapy. Yes. And it's, we're looking forward to the year ahead. It's going to be one hell of a 2024, as far as I'm concerned. A big thank you to all of our special guests today. Greg, Mark, Fiona, thank you so much for coming in. We we really enjoyed having you in the studio today. Don't forget you can catch us on the podcast. We're on all the social medias, on the website. There's so many options. You can contact us all the time, everywhere. Yeah, we're going to throw over to Einstein and Go-Go and Shane. Have a fabulous Sunday morning, everyone. It's, uh, It's been lovely to be with you in the studio today. Till next time. Three, triple. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.